Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has a wide variety of sports content with graphics, reels, highlights, and more. So before this episode begins, what I want you guys to do is go ahead, pull out your phone, and follow the Instagram page at DL Sports.com. That's at DL Sports C-O-M. Thanks guys, and enjoy the show. On today's episode of On the DL Podcast, we have some NFL talk and recap of week three of the NFL season. Again, football never lets us down. Had some really good matchups from this week. College football news and recap as well with that. We have an interview with Walt Ruff, who is the official team reporter for the Carolina Hurricanes. Hockey season is only a couple weeks away, which is just nuts to think about. And to finish the show, I'm going to give you some advice on who to pick up on the waiver wire for fantasy football. As always, we have lots to get into, so let's not waste any time and jump right into this episode. Welcome to episode number 13 of On The Deal Podcast, and the butt punt has been born into eternal history. Bills and Dolphins, let's go over this highly anticipated matchup first. Let's just begin and say that this game should have been Sunday night football over the absolutely atrocious 49ers and Broncos game, and we will touch on that later. But Dolphins get the huge win over the Buffalo Bills, improve to 3-0 on the season, topping the Bills 21-19, edging them out in Miami. Back and forth game. Bills dominated possession in this game. Josh Allen, always doing Josh Allen things. I don't think anyone ever had a doubt about that. 400 yards on the day, over 60 pass attempts, which is just crazy to think about. But the Dolphins' defense, key plays to get them over the hump, get them over their seven-game losing streak to the Bills. They survive which was honestly probably one of the worst drives in NFL history with a minute to go in the game. A drive capped off by the now infamous butt punt, which resulted in a Bills safety to make it 21-19. Mike McDaniel, man, he had to have been pissing his pants during this drive. There was no sense of urgency in this drive whatsoever. Clock management was awful. They call an HB dive, then two quarterback sneaks in the span of about 20 seconds, which were both awfully close to being safeties themselves. Bills get the ball back. A minute 25 left in the game. Everybody's thinking, oh, Josh Allen has the ball with a minute 25 left. No timeouts. Can he do it? They run out of time on the play clock after reception was made by Isaiah McKenzie after they were marching down the field. Looked like they were about to get this thing done. Couldn't get out of bounds for Buffalo with that reception and result. Could not set up a field goal before time expired. Frustration from the Bills. And Ken Dorsey, offensive coordinator for the Bills, who brought us probably the best rage camera experience of all time. Again, why was this game not Sunday night football? We need to address a situation here that is causing some serious controversy within the NFL and the NFL Players Association. The NFLPA is going to review the concussion protocol handling of Tua Tagovailoa, which sent Tua out of the game right before halftime. I mean, he had a concussion. And 
I'm not the only one who feels this way. I know what he said in the post-game press conference about him having a back issue due to the hit that was made that made him fall down while walking it off. I'm not buying that. And I think a lot of other people are not buying that too. If you're even an average football fan, you don't even have to be a football fan. You could have just been watching the game. The way that impact affected him, that was not a back injury. This was a head injury. The way Milano threw him into the ground, which wasn't even that aggressive, to be honest with you. The way his head just whiplashed back into the grass, that's a head injury. Maybe you could have made an argument if it was a neck problem because of that whiplash motion, but Tua was even shaking his head after the play. He was shooken up, shaking his head, shook it a couple times, then down he goes with his body, limbs falling all over the place. There was no way that this was not a head injury. Now, that doesn't mean that he clearly had a concussion, but I'm doing pure speculation here. But I don't blame the NFL Players Association for handling this their way and wanting to investigate because it's definitely suspicious. Everybody was shocked that he was back out there for the second half. Everyone on social media was talking about it. I was watching the game with my friends, and we were just shocked that he was out on that field. We, we couldn't believe our eyes. The team even announced that via Twitter, he was questionable to return with a head injury. So the initial report had nothing to do with his upper back. According to the NFL's concussion protocol, a player must be removed from the game if he exhibits any concussion symptoms. I think that falling down after trying to run off a big hit displays symptoms, but what do I know? I don't play football. I just analyze it, so I don't know anything. He did play really well after his return, which can give you an argument that he was fine. Set up the game winner with a deep bomb to Waddle late in the game. The first half, Waddle and Tyreek were non-existent, which concerns me if I'm a Bills fan. I know that you had a lot of players missing for this game, but you played really well and dominated the possession of this game. And you still lost to a concussed Tua, who only threw for 180 yards. You shut down Tyreek Hill for the majority of the game. You got the ball back after the Dolphins choked the game away, and I understand you had no timeouts, used all of them on their drive, which resulted in that butt punt. Not easy to do, but the Dolphins really didn't play that well, and you still lost the game. It only takes a couple of big plays like the Dolphins had from their D-line, from Waddle, to take this game away from them. Moving on, ladies and gents, they did it. The Carolina Panthers have snapped their nine-game losing streak, the longest losing streak in the NFL. They finally won a game in the 2022 NFL season. This is a double-edged sword. Cannot lie. Because on one hand, feels good not to be a complete loser anymore. But it also sucks that we still have a fraudulent Matt Rule leading this team. This sort of thing always happens. I mean, you knew that one time the guy absolutely had to win a game that he was going to get it done. At the end of the day, got to celebrate your team's W. That's the most important thing. Panthers defense finally showed up, and they were the reason they won this game. If they could put up this kind of defensive effort week in and week out, I think they can win five to six games from that pressure they pursued on Jameis Winston. And I love Jameis Winston, but that guy, was he was struggling. And the Panthers were sacking him all game long, giving him pressure all game long, being physical with him all game long. 
I didn't know his O-line was that poor either. I'll take it. Jeremy Chen might be the best player on the Panthers. This dude is an absolute stud. He was all over the field at all times. Led the team in tackles. I think he had eight tackles on the day. One sack on the day. The only sack committed on Jameis Winston. C.J. Henderson and Shaq Thompson were great too. And like I've said this before, this defense can ball out. They just need to believe in themselves more. We saw what they were capable of doing last year early on in the season when they went 3-0. They are a great defensive unit. They just need communication and belief in themselves because this team, no matter what they are doing on offense, the way they're struggling right now, and we're about to get to that, they can win five games with this defense. I know they can. The Saints did it last year with their defense when they had Taysom Hill at quarterback and Ian Book. This team can be very similar in the fact that they can get five to seven wins. I truly believe that with that defensive unit. They just have to buy in and play more consistently. As for Baker Mayfield, I mean, yikes. Little eye-opening stat for you here. Baker Mayfield completed only 12 of 25 passes on Sunday, has only completed 52% of his passes through the first three games of the season, the lowest start to a season in his career. Only 183 yards per game, also his lowest. And yeah, he hasn't been good. Let's be honest. Let's hold him accountable. But at the same time, it's hard to be great when you have a bottom feeder, bottom five O-line in the NFL. The protection is horrible. It's really bad. And not to mention, he's only about six feet tall. So it's hard for him to get those passes over the D-line when the blocking is awful. And that's been a problem for him throughout his career. You know, I think he is number one in batted down passes since entering the league. Also, I'm about to drop DJ Moore on my fantasy team. He's going to the bench on fantasy. If you have him on your squad, I would do the same thing. If you have any Panthers offensive weapon besides Christian McCaffrey, drop them immediately. Don't drop them, but put them on your bench. They need to figure things out. The Panthers have to draft more players for the offense next year. They have to. Whether that be an O-lineman, which is what I want to happen because that's clearly the worst problem right now. They have to draft an O-lineman for next year. And I don't care if you end up getting the number one pick and have to draft Will Anderson. I know that's an extremely hot take, but in today's NFL, you can go a long way with an, with an elite defense, but in close games, you are not going to win if you don't put up points, especially if you average, what, 15 points a game, like the Panthers are doing right now. Even if they had a chance to draft Bryce Young, he won't be able to do anything with that kind of protection. He's not. Unless you want to go out and get someone on the trade deadline, Moving on to Packers and Bucks, was very excited for this game for obvious reasons with the legendary quarterback matchup, but it was a snooze fest. Of course, Brady had another late rally to end the game, but the two-point conversion to tie the game was no good. Let's discuss the evolution of both of these offenses. The Packers I counted out way too soon, and it was definitely a heat-of-the-moment take, so I can sit up here and say that with my chest out. I got a lot of heat about that on social media, but here I am. I'm admitting I was wrong. You guys are welcome. Without Christian Watson for this game, Rodgers is starting to develop that chemistry with Romeo Dubes. You can see that. 
you can see that chemistry developing. And we heard about that relationship with them in training camp, but we have not seen that in game until yesterday. Dubes led the team in receptions and yards on the day, definitely relying on that already developed connection with Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb. Obviously, that's something that they've always had. The Bucks struggled, to put it lightly, and Tom Brady desperately needs to have Evans and Godwin back if they want to string together something special. For the second straight week, the Bucks were held without a touchdown going into the fourth quarter. That's not going to cut it. Both of these defenses are special without a doubt, and everybody knew that coming into the game. The under was a lock for whoever took that great on your part. I believe that both of these teams will be meeting in the playoffs, like I said last week. I mean... It's great that both of these teams are in the NFC because a development like this from both sides on the offensive side of the ball would not work if you played in the AFC West or the AFC East or even the AFC as a whole. Maybe not the AFC South, but it's a great year to be in the NFC. That's why I think that maybe an NFC team is going to take the Super Bowl this year, literally due to the fact that being the AFC champ in the playoffs is going to be such a badge of honor to wear. I mean, it really is. It's a gauntlet in that conference, and I think whoever gets out of it will be beat up physically, emotionally, everything on top of them. It's not going to be easy for them to put that badge of honor and that great accomplishment behind them and go win it all. Like, for instance, if the Bills go out and win the AFC, they beat the Chiefs, which is a team... They've been longing to beat in the playoffs for so long after so much heartbreak over the last two seasons. It's going to be hard for them to put that behind them within a two-week span with all of their fans riding on them, with all their fans wanting them to finally bring a Super Bowl to Buffalo and face a talented Eagles or Packers team who will have a much easier road to the Super Bowl in all forms. Those are just my thoughts. But speaking of the Eagles... How about Jalen Hurts? You cannot tell me that this guy isn't the front runner for MVP right now. You think about the guys that come into mind after week three. The top three has to be Jalen Hurts, Tua Tagovailoa, and Josh Allen. Everybody was wondering if Jalen could be the guy for Philly after obtaining A.J. Brown, and he's proven that not only can he escape the pocket and run like we know he does at an elite level, but he can air that football out and find his guys. Devontae Smith, career game on Sunday. A.J. Brown is, is a solidified top 10 receiver in the NFL. He's thrown for about 1,000 yards through three games. Top five in QBR rating. Only one interception. 67 completion percentage, which is 7% higher than his career stats. On pace for a 5,000-yard season. With his running game in that arsenal, it's happening, people. Jalen Hurts is the real deal and has shown everyone that he's a baller and very much capable to be a leader of the Philadelphia Eagles. Right now, they are the best team in the NFC, and you cannot tell me that he is not the MVP as of right now after week three. You heard the MVP chance in Washington. He is the head of the pack as things stand. Talk about Tua in that MVP race as well. 3-0 record in the AFC after a tough three-game stretch. The Bills are an elite team, as we know. The Ravens are a great team. The Patriots are decent and a division rival for them. What really sells this pitch for Tua as MVP 
are the clutch plays that he's had so far this season. Going back to that deep ball from Waddle on Sunday, this is a deja vu moment for him. Gets sacked on second down on that drive and then comes back to air it out 50 yards, third and 22 situation, down three points in the fourth quarter to Jalen Waddle. This defeats the, the question surrounding him if he could be the guy for the Dolphins. This wasn't the first time. He did it in the comeback against the Ravens, and people still wanted to question him watching those replays of those throws, saying that he threw he underthrew Tyreek on every single one. Patty Mahomes always underthrew Tyreek Hill, and it's hard not to when he's running that fast. He's second in pass yards, top three in touchdowns, first overall in QBR rating. Yeah, this can definitely happen for him. Josh Allen is also in there. I mean, talk about the best talent in the game right now. I think that his competitive edge mixed with his game is a match made in heaven for this team. First in passing yards by a long shot currently. Top five in all throwing categories. He's going to be in the MVP race for the next five years all the way down the line. And he's going to win a lot of them too. I have no doubt about that. The Bills though, even though they lost this game, you could still make the case that they're the best team in the NFL. Like I mentioned they had a lot of players out. Their secondary was all banged up against those receivers. Allen had a bad slip-up at the end of the game, which I think was a fluke situation for him, looking for Isaiah McKenzie in the end zone. But, you know, that stuff happens. That stuff happens, man. And I don't think anybody doubts his ability to lead this team. He's in the running. Tua is in the running. Jalen is currently the front runner. That's where I believe things stand through three weeks here in the NFL season. College football, we had some great games this weekend. First, guys, I was so close to calling that Wake Forest upset. I was so ready to come on this episode and talk about that hot take I made. Man, we were close on that, but can't win them all. Clemson gets the win in double overtime. Wake Forest had that game in the bag. They should have won that game. It's all good. We'll live with it. That was such a fun one to watch, though. Right as the new games began, we got that entertainment right in our front seat. Both teams got to work with their cornerbacks in this week in practice because it looked like a Madden game out there. But I'm not going to complain. I don't think anyone else is going to complain. Deep balls all game from Hartman and DJ on Clemson, especially Nate Wiggins on Clemson. Dude, this guy, Nate Wiggins, he was getting toasted throughout this entire game. Looked like Jalen Ramsey in week one. DJ, five touchdowns compared to Hartman, six. I mean... I really thought this was going to be more of a low-scoring affair, but I don't think anyone wants to complain about that entertainment, especially from the ACC and the way they're struggling right now. Teams like them, Florida State, NC State, you know, they're getting a little bit better, definitely better from the last couple years. So improvement, improvement for sure. This shows you, though, Clemson, they are not for real. I mean, if they make it to the college football playoff, they're going to get swallowed by whoever they play. Imagine watching Clemson and Georgia and Brock Bowers going up against that secondary, and the same goes on for the other side of the ball with their defense against DJ. It's not going to be easy for them at all, by any means. I still don't think they're going to win the ACC, but who knows? It's a weak conference, and with NC State climbing, like I said, they could take it from right under their feet. They play each other next week in Clemson, so get ready for a top 10 showdown. Looking forward to that game Great quarterback matchup. Going to be exciting one in Clemson for sure. Another heartbreaker for me was 
Arkansas and Texas A&M. I had Arkansas money line, and of course, the kicker doinks it off the goalpost. Not even a normal doink. I mean, the worst doink you can possibly have. A doink from the very, very tip of the post. Definitely one of the worst ones you're going to see all season long. Not even close. Arkansas gave this one away. I mean, I still think they're the better team than A&M. I know it's weird to say that, and I know it's weird to dissect this Texas A&M team. If I'm an Aggies fan, I don't even know where to begin because this team is all over the place. Huge win for them. They've been on a roller coaster of emotions, even in week four already. I think, honestly, for me as an Alabama fan, I'm more afraid of the fact that Arkansas lost this game and are playing Alabama at home. I know I said last week I would be very nervous to see them win this game and have a top 10 showdown in Fayetteville, Arkansas. But Arkansas, they're going to be more motivated than ever to get revenge and bring their New Year's Six Bowl hopes back to the table next week, hosting the Crimson Tide. I mean, that's going to be a really big test for Bryce Young and this Alabama team. I've said multiple times throughout this podcast that this is going to be one game I'm really nervous about. K.J. Jefferson is a gamer. He's one of the best in the country. He can torch you if you aren't playing your best game. And he's a guy who deserves more attention. I really, I really think that. He's always a guy that people recognize, never in that Heisman conversation, never seriously considered as a top, top tier player. He's great. They're going to be ready to play this game. And don't get me wrong, I think Alabama's going to be ready to go as well as always. I've learned over the last two seasons that having Bryce Young as your quarterback is probably the best safety net you can have as a sports fan in all sports. Even if things aren't going well at all in the beginning of the game and you think you're going to lose, vibes are low, you're at an all-time low, you know that things aren't going well, the flip always switches with him and those final moments of the game, and you never panic with him. With him and the best coach of all time, you just got to have trust. Another road game that I'm starting to get worried about slightly, keyword is slightly, is Tennessee. They, I was watching the game this weekend against Florida was really dissecting Hayden Hooker and that offense they have. They have one of the best offenses in the country. The good news is I think Alabama's defense can trump that and are conditioned to the point where they can slow down that fast pace and sometimes no huddle offense that Tennessee brings to the table. And on the other side, I don't think Tennessee's defense is great. I mean, you let up 33 points to Florida and Alabama can bring that talent to them. Absolutely. You know they have the talent for that. But the fact that they haven't beaten Alabama in years and they really believe that this will be the season that they can get it done in Knoxville. I've talked to multiple Tennessee fans and they think this is the year. They, In fact, they know this is the year. This is their one shot that they have. Going to be inside Neyland Stadium in Knoxville. They're going to be ready to play. This is their Super Bowl. It is more important to them to beat Alabama this year than it is to make it to a big bowl game or win out the rest of the year. And I'm serious about that. And that's a scary thing to think about. But as long as you have Saban listening to that, rat poison is the best form of medicine for this Alabama team, as we know in years past. To begin this year, I had in my college football playoff, Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and USC. Through four weeks, three of those four teams look very possible. 
And I got a lot of hate for the USC one. But listen, guys, and I said this before the season started, they have by far the easiest road to the playoff out of all the top 10 teams right now. And you can't tell me otherwise. They don't have to be one of the best four teams in the country, as we know from years past. But they will go undefeated and make it out and make it into the playoff. I truly believe that. Not to mention the appeal they have for fans and revenue. All they got to do is beat Utah at their place. How good is Utah? I mean, they're decent, but I think they can do that. And I know they got a close win over Oregon State. That was a weird game where the line was shifting so much throughout the week. And they got the win, so that's all that matters. If they get a win over Utah and then go on to win the Pac-12 championship, it's a wrap. They're going to get in. If you want to say Notre Dame is a big one for them, then that's fine too. But we know what they're about. I think USC is significantly better than them. Oklahoma, tough loss to Kansas State this weekend. So I think unless they beat up on everyone else throughout their schedule, in addition get some luck along the way, it's going to be over for them. Right now, if I'm going to revise my original playoff, it's going to be this. It's going to be Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, and USC. That's in no particular order. But those are the four teams that I feel like are in right now. Alabama and Georgia are going to be undefeated. At least I predict that. And one team will fall and still get in, especially if it's a close game in the, in the SEC championship game. Ohio State, they're going to roll through the Big Ten. It's looking like an easy cakewalk for them. And then USC, like I just said, they're going to get in there. That's a good playoff too. I think if you're going to get, I think you're going to get some great matchups in there some good revenue going, that's going to be a sweet Final Four if it comes to fruition. All right, guys, now we're going to get into our interview with the Carolina Hurricanes team reporter and content producer, Walt Ruff. Great talk with him about the fast-approaching NHL season. And for you Hurricanes fans out there, we dissected everything about the team. So without further delay, here is Walt Ruff. Okay, guys, we now welcome on a very special guest. It is the Carolina Hurricanes editorial content producer and team reporter, Walt Ruff. Walt, thank you so much for joining the show. How's everything going on your end? Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. I really appreciate it. It is, uh, it's an exciting time to be around the Carolina Hurricanes, another season, a fresh start, and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting going here. Yeah, me as well. As the audience knows, I'm a diehard, lifelong Hurricanes fan. So I'm very excited to dive into discussing the squad with you for the season. Let's get right into it. Let's start out with training camp because that is underway in Raleigh. Can't believe the NHL season is approaching so quickly, along with some preseason action tonight and Raleigh against Tampa Bay. Walt, from your professional perspective, what are some headlines and players you're zoning in on as training camp progresses here? I think one of the most fun things for me each training camp is focusing on the guys who maybe don't quite get the love that they do throughout the course of the season. You know, like we all know Sebastian Ajo is going to score 20, 30 goals this year. We know Jordan Saul is going to be that reliable third line center. But what's really interesting to me is who rounds out the lineup, who plays on that, you know, quote unquote, fourth line. We know Rod Brindamore doesn't like to tab lines by numbers per se. And then you look on the back end, who's going to be that third defensive pair? Uh, so those are the really unique questions to me that each team is facing, of course, at this point in the season. But 
the things that are determined here within the next week or so go on to impact your team for over the course of the next 82 games. So um, we're going to see a little bit of that tonight with a, a different look on the fourth line with Alexander Poshin, uh, Malte Stromwall and Lane Peterson, three guys who are relatively speaking new to the organization and aren't household names yet, but guys who are very much so competing for roster spots. So those are the things that really get me excited about training camp, because like I said, we know what we know, but uh, what we don't know is a little bit more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to go over that depth chart with you here in a little bit, but you mentioned those guys. I kind of expected some newer guys in the organization to step up into that fourth line. I feel like that's a big question for the Hurricanes. That was some problems they had, I felt like, in the postseason last year. As preseason games are about to get in the swing here this evening, you mentioned those guys on the fourth line who might be fighting for a spot on the roster who are just on that borderline that you're going to be watching closely. As we know, a guy in Seth Jarvis last year was a guy who barely didn't make the opening roster but quickly became one of the best players for the Carolina Hurricanes, all because of being called up due to an injury. So is there a Seth Jarvis-like scenario here that could be brewing for the Canes this season? You know, it's hard to say it's an exact comparison because Seth, in a way, came out of the, came out of the blue in the sense of it was either going to be here or go back to Portland. There was no harm in him going back to Portland, but like you said, he played himself into that roster spot. Um, a little bit different, like I said, but is Jack Drury ready to make the jump? Um, fantastic first professional season in North America last year in Chicago, over a point per game in the playoffs. He was putting up numbers that hadn't been done since Jamie Benn played in the American League. And we all know that Jamie Benn's an incredible player in the NHL now. So is Jack Drury ready to make the jump? I think that's what a lot of people are excited to see. Um, and, and again, it's a situation in which if maybe he's not, there's no harm in him going back to the American League. Let him take his time. There are plenty, plenty good years of actuary left ahead. It doesn't necessarily have to be this year. Um, but he's somebody who certainly a lot of people have a lot of eyes, eyeballs on, excuse me, because in the absence of Vincent Trocek, I think a lot of people are expecting Jesperi Kokaniemi to jump up to that second line center role. Like we talked about, Jordan Stahl is kind of planted at that third spot, but is that fourth role for Jack Drury's taking? Um, and again, something that will likely be decided over the course of the next 10 days or so. And um, fans are excited to see what he can do, right? Because two goals in two games in an emergency situation last year. So can he be an every night player for this team? Yeah, and I was at a game last season the Hurricanes were playing against the Los Angeles Kings over Christmas break and Jack Drury was called up for one of those games and he was fantastic. I mean, you could see why he was such an elite point scorer in the minor leagues with Chicago Colorado Cup champions. I mean, he's a talent that I think a lot of Hurricanes fans are excited to see possibly step up into that fourth center role, which I think he's going to do. You mentioned a lot of movement this year, guys like Vinny Trocek, lots of movement during the offseason for the Carolina Hurricanes. They get rid of some key players last season, most notably guys like Vincent Trocek, Nino Niederreiter, Tony D'Angelo. But you bring in Brent Birds from the San Jose Sharks, Max Pacioretty from Las Vegas, who unfortunately, as we know, suffered an Achilles injury, will not be suiting up for the Hurricanes anytime in the near future. You bring in Paul Stasty from Winnipeg. And you re-sign Marty Natchez for two years. Don Waddell worked clearly some of his magic here. But I want to know your thoughts as a professional on these movements and what was your biggest takeaway or what do you think is the biggest impact here movement-wise for the Hurricanes? 
You know, it's funny. Something I always go back to was July 13th was the first day of free agency. And the team had known already that they lost Tony D'Angelo to Philadelphia. And so there was kind of this like unknown uncertainty, what's going to happen with the team, because that's a big part at right D. And then Vincent Trocek signs in New York and it's like, oh no, we need a second line center and we need a top pair right D. So everybody's like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And then within a matter of hours, you land a six-time all-star and a guy who I had, I believe had 412 points in his last 500 games in Max Pacci already. And then as we know, a little bit later in the summer, Paul Stasny. So like you said, a lot of movement, but I think it's all very exciting, right? Because how could you you know, not enjoy the fact, like you said, you're getting one of the most reliable right defensemen in the game in Brent Burns. I think it's the hardest position to fill in the game. So as good as Tony was last year, the fact that you comparatively get somebody who's in the ballpark, if not better, I think is fantastic. And then, yeah, it'll be around the all-star break till we see Max Pacioretty, but he's here. He's around the team right now. He's rehabbing, he's working out, he's building that camaraderie with the guys. So uh, they're all super excited for when he eventually does get in the lineup. And that, of course, is just going to add to the depth of what is an already pretty deep team. Um, so there's lots to be excited about. It, it's funny, like I said, within a matter of six hours, it went from panic. Is this team going to be a contender again to all of a sudden it's like, oh, my goodness, they might be even better this year. So not a lot of front offices can do that. And like you alluded to, give Don Waddell and staff a big credit because they did. And they've given fans reason to be excited when quite frankly, for whether it was a matter of hours or minutes, there was a bit of uncertainty among the fan base. Yeah, and those two landings in particular, you talk about Brent Burns, six-time All-Star. We know he's getting a little bit older in age, but I feel like on that struggling Sharks team, you couldn't really see him excel the way he used to be when they were better back in the day. In addition, you talk about a guy in Max Pacioretty. I mean, they got him for pretty much nothing, and that was a steal you know, it, it, it does suck that he gets hurt. Um, Achilles injury, not something you want to see, but I do think he's going to be back in that role. I'm glad that you said he's around the team, bonding with the players. That's obviously very important to Rod Brindamore, bringing that locker room closer together. When you look at these movements a little bit deeper, I feel like the Hurricanes recognize that goal scoring and depth was an issue in the postseason, particularly goal scoring. And once they got into the second round against the New York Rangers, this was especially apparent along with the obvious road record. That's why you bring in a guy like Mats Pacioretty who can fill up the score sheet. You get a guy like Brent Burns who is one of the best offensive defensemen, if not the best offensive defenseman in the game still. And I think he's an all-around better defenseman than D'Angelo was. Do you think that, or do you get the sense that these moves made the Hurricanes an overall better roster that is built for deep runs that fans are hoping for? I think so. And I think it's certainly hard to argue against. You can say they have just as good odds, but you know, I don't think anybody can say that the team got worse. Um, you brought up goal scoring, which was a really good point because yes, Brent Burns said on the first day of training him, he feels like a rookie. He feels reinvigorated. Um, everybody likes to bring up his age, but he hasn't missed a game in the last six years. So it's like, who cares, you know? Um, and then the goal scoring, I think there are a couple guys internally who we can look at. They had good years, and I use that a bit loosely because Martin Natchez wasn't satisfied with the year he had last year, but he feels like he can take a step forward in that goal scoring department. Andre Svechnikov said he wanted to be better during the playoffs, so those are two young players who are only going to grow with the experience throughout the postseason play as their careers go on. So 
I'm not so much so worried about that right now. Um, but yes, the the veteran presence, Paul Stasny, a guy who we haven't gotten to talk about a ton. We're going to see him start on the wing with Jordan Stahl and Jesper Faust. A lot of fans got comfortable with Nino Niederreiter being in that spot the last couple of years. And Paul Stasny scored 20 goals last year on a Winnipeg team that was okay, right? You can classify them as that. So if he can put up another 20 goal season on again, what some consider your third line and 45 points. I think all Canes fans take that 10 out of 10. So uh, yeah, again, lots to be excited about and the veteran presence of ensuring that when playoff time comes, these guys know how to get down to business. I think it only helps all around. Yeah. And I love you bring up the point about the goal scoring in the playoffs being an internal problem because Barton H just stuck out like a sore thumb, especially with the, the year he had, his rookie season with the Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, he was a diamond in the rough player who shined, especially during that entire season. And it was definitely kind of a letdown that he didn't play up to his ability that we know that he can play at. And I'm glad the Hurricanes re-signed him two more years because I feel like he can be that player. And you talk about Andrei Svechnikov. I think he's a guy who I'm very excited to watch this year because I feel like his ceiling he's not touching nearly where his ceiling could be. I think he can take even another step and, you know, step up his game to a whole new level in terms of goal scoring. When you think about the Hurricanes' best players, you think about Sebastian Ajo. Well, Sebastian Ajo isn't really a pure goal scorer. He's just a very intelligent, one of the most intelligent hockey players in the NHL. He can, his vision, his passing, his playmaking ability, his scrappiness on the forecheck, um, he does those things very well, but he's not a guy that you're going to say on the bench, hey, go get us a goal. And I felt like that was an issue. They didn't have one particular player who you could say, hey, go out and get us a goal. And when you have a rookie in Seth Jarvis who was kind of filling that position at times in the postseason, that wasn't a recipe for success that you were hoping for to put on a rookie player. Certainly. Uh but this is also a team that likes to get it done by committee, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were just talking about Brent Burns' age for a second there, 37. You've got Martin H. is at 23 and Andre Svechnikov at 22. It's wild to think that these guys could still have 10, 15, 20 years left in this league. So like we were saying a minute ago, they're only going to get better with age as they get that experience in postseason play. Seth Jarvis, again, 20 years old. Um, the future is so bright for this team there almost are inevitably going to be growing pains as there are with any organization when you have star talent that is so young. Um, Sebastian Ajo is a fantastic all-around player, and he's still, I believe, only 26 years old. So again, so much more in store there. And on the previous point, now there's those veteran pieces that you bring in. Max Pacioretty can go get you a goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that the havoc that the third line can create, as you brought up the four check with Jesper Foss, Jordan Stahl, and who knows if that is Paul Stasny. If you, you know, you lose a 24 goal score and you bring in a 21 goal score, I think you can work with that. So, yes, it is a, a by committee approach. Um, could Andre Sechenkov take the next step this year? He had 30 last year. Who's to say he couldn't get closer to 40 this year? So, there's a lot of things to like about the team. I know that last year, uh, yes, especially. In the postseason, there were some players who a little bit more was expected out of, but it will come. It will come. Yeah, and I totally understand that it's a 
Roddy has really built the team up to be a, a, a full team effort for, and you especially saw that in the regular season. And I just feel like a lot of fans feel like they really needed one guy to kind of take a step up and put the team on their back, like a all-star player in David Pasternak or your Connor McDavid or your Leon Dreisaitl's or Nathan McKinnon's of, you know, players of that nature. And that's world-class and that's really hard to find, but taking a look at, the hypothetical starting lineup and death chart that I created here. When you look at the first line, you have Tavo Teravainen, Sebastian Ajo centering the first line, uh, Seth Jarvis on the right wing on that first line. Look at the second line. You have Andrei Svechnikov on the left wing, centered by Jesperi Kokiniemi, and then Marty Natchez on the right side. We already mentioned the third line a lot. Paul Stastny on the left, Jordan Stahl on the middle, and then Jesper Foss on the right. And then the fourth line brings up a lot of questions. Like we said earlier, do you bring up Jack Drury to be that center position? Is Jordan Martin not going to be playing on the right? What about Koss that they brought, brought in from Toronto? And that is a question that I'm really worried about, not worried about, but very interested in to see where they're going to go with that. Are they going to bring up development, developmental players or are they going to stick with more of a veteran look with Jordan Martinuk or even Derek Stepan up in that fourth line spot? And then when you also look at the third line defensive pairing, like you were talking about, I know they brought in Coughlin from Vegas along with Max Pacioretty in that deal. And you talk about a guy in Jalen Chatfield who could also be on that right side in the third pairing there. I really am a fan of him. Um, honestly, I made up all this on my own. So who knows what Roddy will end up doing. We know he likes to mix things up very frequently. But what stand out to me here the most is Jesperi Kokaniemi and his impact on that second line center. Um, we know that the Hurricanes gave him some big time money, so they're giving him a lot of trust there. And I also think about Natchez on that second line. I've heard rumors that he wants to try out the center position. I think he alluded to that in his postseason press conference at the end of the year. And then finally, the mixing and matching of the fourth line, like I alluded to. I mean, what are your thoughts on all these points of interest that I'm bringing up here for the lineup? I think it's all very fair. I think if the season started, regular season started tomorrow, I think that's pretty close to what we would see. Um, like you said, though, it's it's Rod Rendemore, right? As certain as one things are one day, maybe they're mixed up the next. Um, that fourth line is is very interesting. It seems like you've got about six guys going for three spots. And then if you carry an extra forward or two, uh, Stefan Nason's another name who you throw in the mix there. I mean, he scored 48 goals in the American league last year. So if you're in a player in his position, you're probably wondering what else do I have to do to prove that, you know, I can get it done at the national league level. And he's talked about how last year provided him with a sense of consistency, because in the previous four years, he played for three different NHL teams. He was going on waivers. He was getting traded. He had that stability last year. And now he wants to prove that he can stick in Carolina. So Again, about six guys battling for, let's say, five roster spots there. You've got three on the fourth line and two extras. And then on the back end, Ethan Bear, Dylan Coughlin, um, Jalen Chatfield. That's that's a, a really good one there. So it's going to be some sort of mix. Where does Calvin Hahn factor in? He's a guy who he said it himself. He's trying to stay relevant. But as someone who's trying to stay relevant, there's a big there's a, a big credit due for he's been an every night NHLer for the last couple of years. Yes, he was on a struggling Chicago team, but 
he has familiarity with the organization as well. So could he play himself into a contract here? So you have about four guys going for three spots there. Uh, it's all really interesting. And it's funny, we're kind of coming full circle now because those are the things that really interest me here over this two, three week period. Um, and then we think we know it all right now, right on this first day of preseason. But then who who knows? What if somebody stands out? What if there's a complete dark horse? What if Malte Stromwall comes out tonight and records a hat trick and gets on everybody's radar? Where does he factor in then? You've got seven guys competing for five spots. Um, I'm going to knock on wood here quick, but we all know injuries happen. Who knows mm-hmm. how that will play a role in things? So, um, yeah, it's it's a lot. Uh, I'm just as curious as you are to see how it all shakes down. But that's really what makes this time of year fun, I think. Yeah, and that's why preseason is so awesome, right? I mean, I think a lot of fair weather fans don't really understand the impact that preseason has on your organization, on your franchise, whoever you pull for. And I love how you bring up Calvin DeHaan and Ethan Bear because those are two guys that I currently have on the fourth defensive pairing. But who knows? We know that, like you said, DeHaan has familiarity with the organization. Ethan Bear was kind of in and out of the lineup at times last year and felt like he could have been implemented a little bit more in the playoffs when the Hurricanes were struggling on the power play in the postseason because he kind of brings that quarterback offensive dynamic to to the team. So I'm very interested to see how that goes. Um, Walt, which player are you most excited to watch this season out of the entire roster? Oh, see, that's an interesting question because, you know, I feel like I could make a case for almost every single player. I do think there's more. I am going to I'm going to kind of dodge the question a little bit. Instead of giving you one, I'm going to, I'm going to run down my laundry list of who I'm excited about. Um, I think there's more in store for Andre Sachikov. I think we're going to see his season career high, excuse me, 30 goals. I think we're going to see a new career high this year. I'll say that not to put pressure on him by any means, but I just, I think there's more in store there. Um, Dylan Coughlin, let, let's see what transpires there over the next little bit here early in training camp. He's been running power play too. He's not just some throw in from Vegas on the Max Pacioretty deal. The team really likes him. So how does he fit in? Um, man, I could give you more. How does Martin Natures respond to last mm-hmm. season? He says he wants to be better. Let's see it. He's getting that opportunity, right? That's a really talented second line. Svechnikov, Kokaniemi, and Natures. So he, he you would think almost that that's a line that should have no trouble filling the back of the net. So let's go see him do it. Um, Andre Kasha, where does, where does he fit in? He is a offensive specialist who, again, as of right now, if the regular season started tomorrow, would he be on that even strength fourth line? Maybe probably. Um, but yet again, he's practicing with power play unit one. So that's really interesting too. Um, Jack Drury, like we talked about a little bit earlier in the conversation, can he make the jump? Derek Stepan, will he be back? Will he earn a contract? Is there room for him amongst all that competition on the fourth line? Like I said, I could go on and on. There's a lot that I'm excited about. I hope everyone else is just as excited about too. I love all of those answers. And you bring up a really good point about that second line. And it really just popped into my head. It's kind of like a comparison to the kid line that they're calling it in New York with the Rangers. Um, I kind of see a, a reflection there with just with that age group and all three of those guys, I feel like have a chip on their shoulder. They have to prove that they are a solidified second line in the NHL. So I love what you said about that. 
I'm going to go with a couple players here. I'm going to go with Jalen Chatfield as my first player. I am a huge fan of Jalen Chatfield. I think he's great. I thought when he got called up from Chicago in a few games there, he did his job and exceeded those expectations of just doing his job. He brings physicality to the to the game, brings physicality to the blue line, brings good puck movement to the blue line. Good all-around player, and I'm really excited to see him finally earn a spot. I feel like he knows he's ready to finally be on an NHL roster consistently, and I think he could bring a lot to the table. I felt like he could have been called up in scenarios instead of the defensive pairing of Ian Cole and Brandon Smith at times, but I know he had a very significant role in the postseason with the Chicago Wolves winning that Calder Cup, so I understand that. I like him a lot this year, and of course, huge fan of Seth Jarvis. I mean, this kid is a stud, and I think he can really, really take his game to the next level. I know a lot of national media networks across the NHL are hyping this kid up, um, and also just seems like an overall great human being. I mean, you, you get to be around these guys all the time. I'm sure you could go on and on about how what he brings to the locker room and that energy that he brings to the team, but very excited to watch both those guys this year. Totally. And you hit the nail on the head with Seth. He brings that youthful influx. Like he's just a 20 year old kid at the end of the day. But like we were talking about earlier, Martin Natchez, Andre Sveshnikov, they're not far behind. Yes, Barry Kokaniemi, same thing, 21, 22 years old. So um, it's fun to talk about the amount of youth that's in the locker room and the fact that they're only going to get better, right? Or at least they should. At least that's what the numbers suggest for all of them. So if we think they're good now, it only gives you more and more hope for the future. And I uh, totally agree. Chatfield, it, it was a tough situation last year because of the contracts and the salary cap that he was, he, I'm going to use the word stuck in Chicago, but that's not appropriate um, because it was just kind of the way that things shook out here. You didn't want to have, in addition to Ethan Bear, another contract sitting upstairs when, like you said, Chatfield was power play, penalty kill, a very important role for Chicago, and it worked out, right? He was an anchor on that blue line for that Calder Cup run. So um, I'm sure he, just like you, is hoping to make the next step, or I should say as you hope to see the next step from him, I'm sure he's hoping to showcase that as well. And he is an interesting player to watch over the course of these final few preseason games. Absolutely, totally agree with that. Well, this is the question that all Kaniacs are wondering. We know that Roddy, as the head coach, expectations are always going to be high, but how do they get over that hump? 2019, magical run to the Eastern Conference Finals, make an appearance there. Great run for that team. Great for franchise history, not making the playoffs in 10 years. 2020, COVID year, first round exit to Boston in the bubble. 2021, second round exit to Tampa, went on to win the Stanley Cup. We knew how dominant that team was and how dominant they've been lately. And then this season, second round exit to New York in seven games, losing game seven at home in PNC Arena. I think fans alike really thought that last season was going to be the year for the Hurricanes to finally make it to the Stanley Cup final. After an amazing regular season, always at the top of the league, winning the Metro Division, not a small feat by any means, so what is it do you think that the Hurricanes need to do in order to get over that hump and hoist Lord Stanley in front of all their fans for the second time in franchise history? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, just from my perspective, where my mind goes when, of course, I'll start 
with chronologically the most recent year. When I think about last year's playoffs, the emergence of Pyotr Kachekov was fantastic, right? But losing your number one and your number two goaltender to injuries is difficult. There's no two ways about it. You, you know, there's going to be critics around the league who will say that, yes, that's always the knock on Frederick Anderson and on Tiranta. Okay, fine. Say what you will. You can now, you can't predict injuries for players. They happen. Yes, of course. And I think it they were both incredibly unfortunate in terms of timing. Um, who knows what would have happened if the team would have emerged beyond the second round last year, because we know that Antiranta wouldn't have been an option. He missed six to eight weeks following the season. So how would they have fared with Pyotr Kchekov in the Eastern conference final? So that's what stands out to me last year. I think the probability of having your one a and one B goaltenders, both getting hurt within the same amount of time and eliminating them from playoff games at least I hope for this year is relatively low. Um, So that's a big thing in terms of the previous years. What I almost bulk them together is you talk about 2019 and what was so special about that is think about who a large portion of our conversation here over the last 30 minutes or so has been structured around guys like Andre Svechnikov. Where was he three, four years ago? A very young kid playing in the national hockey league, right? Has he gotten better since then? Absolutely. Martin Natchez, when he's come into the league, I know he had a, a good rookie season, second year moving forward. He wants to get better, right? He wants to take that next step moving forward. They didn't have some of the pieces like who were so relevant within the last year. And I know, I believe it was three years for Nino Niederreiter. Vincent Trocek came aboard in 2020. Like, Yes, they got in in 2019, but they were still building, right? They were building what's going on here now. Guys who they acquired during that 2020 season, like Brady Shea, he's a big piece. He's a reliable force on that second pair, along with Brett Pesci. Those guys are locked up for, I was going to say a long time, but I was thinking about Pesci's six-year extension for the moment. Um, I digress. The they, they were building. That's the way I look at it. Like Getting in 2019, 2020, Yes, but it was also just the start of this build. And it's not a rebuild. It's not a, I don't want to say, oh, it's not a build for the future because it kind of was because you have players who are now under term and on the salary cap for a long time. Kokuniemi, Spetschenkopf signed for years and years. They were still building what is coming together now. And I think that's what's special because we talk about the movement this offseason, Tony D'Angelo out, Brent Burns in, Vincent Trocek out, Jesperi Kokuniemi up in the lineup. As much as there's movement, you still have that core. Jordan Stahl is still your captain. Sebastian Ajo is still your first-line center. So, in a way, like it's, it's pieces, right? It's not the whole pie that's coming together. It's just pieces out, pieces in. And if fans thought that the team could do it Last year, think about how much skepticism there was this time last year. People weren't sure, you know, I don't know about this goaltending tandem. I don't know mm-hmm. about Tony D'Angelo. Why, can, why couldn't they do it again this year? Why can't they have a good chance this year? And I think a lot of people, quite frankly, are expecting them to have a good chance. And if they put it all together, there should be every reason to believe that their chance is just as good, if not better. Yeah, I love everything you said. I think it really is about all the pieces coming in. And it's so funny that you bring up the skepticism that was this time last year, especially with that, as we know, the Jennings Trophy winning 
duo that was brought in for the Carolina Hurricanes last year. I think Frederick Anderson is inbound for another great year. He really showed that he's one of the best goaltenders in the NHL. And Antti Ranta, I mean, he couldn't have played any better from when he was healthy. I know he had a couple slip-ups here and there against the Rangers series, but he played outstanding. And there was nothing you could have done with that luck handed to the Carolina Hurricanes late in that series. So, you know, you move on from it, and I think they are building something special. I'm very excited for this year. Um, Walt, I have one final question for you. This has been terrific. Thoughts on the new anniversary alternate jerseys going back to the classic Hurricanes look for the 25th anniversary of the franchise. What are your thoughts on these threads? I think it's fantastic. I think there are a lot of smart people in the Carolina Hurricanes marketing department who deserve a lot of credit um, for the 25th anniversary things that are going on. I think right now I'm looking out at the uh, 25th anniversary logo at Center Ice. I think that looks really sharp. I think the fan base really appreciated the reintroduction of the silver on the red sweaters, right? But it's also past meets presence because if you look at the back, like it's got that little half curl in the back underneath the numbers, that's a bit of a modern flair. Um, yes, I know it was supposed to happen a couple of years ago, but how magical is it now that the stadium series game is coming during the 25th anniversary? So I think that's really special too. There's a lot more too that um, if I can leave you with a bit of a teaser that is going to be introduced in the coming weeks and months about the 25th anniversary season that fans are going to be excited about. I think fans were excited. Those that have come to the prospects games are coming tonight for the preseason. A lot of people seem to be very excited about the center ice logo. A lot of people seem to be excited about the black jerseys at home. A lot of people seem to be excited about the reintroduction of the red jerseys. So I'm excited to see hopefully the, trend continues to be positive for what is to be announced and i'm looking forward to seeing everyone's thoughts on it because like i said there are a lot of people behind the scenes here who are working very hard to ensure that this season is a special one it, it, and it blends so perfectly right to like this isn't just oh 25th anniversary season ho-hum like 25th anniversary season and the team's supposed to be really good so i think those two things combined are very exciting and like i said i'm looking forward to seeing everyone's reaction to what's to come yeah well thank you for dropping that teaser to the audience that's great uh i'm also going to be traveling up for that stadium series game i'm super excited about that i know it's been pushed back a couple years here and there so very excited that the hurricanes get to play against the washington capitals inside carter finley stadium right next door to pnc arena gonna be electric cannot wait for that matchup Walt, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're welcome back on the show anytime. I can't wait to watch the Hurricanes in action this season very soon. And I appreciate you for everything you do for the fans and with your coverage of the team. Thanks so much, Sam. I appreciate you having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And yeah, looking forward to a great year. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Walt Ruff. To finish up the show, we're going to look at players that you need to pick up for your fantasy lineup right now as you head into week four of fantasy football. This is crunch time to save your team from finishing last or near to last. The glory of your squad clinches on these moments and these movements and your league. So listen up. These are five players that you need to pick up from the waiver wire list if they are available. If you have anyone in your lineup that's struggling, you need to go after these guys. The first player that you need to keep an eye on is Jamal Williams. He's only 40% rostered in leagues everywhere. Super reliable secondary back for the, for the Detroit Lions who can give you yardage, touchdowns for your squad, not to mention he's just a beast of a human being 
if you watched Hard Knocks and saw how emotional he was about the game of football, you got to give that man nothing but respect for the grind he brings to the table for the Detroit Lions. But anyways, he had 17 points in week one, 24 points this week against the Vikings with 87 yards and two touchdowns. Campbell loves this guy, loves to implement him on second and third downs, even on goal line situations. He's a guy who is always filled in the game. If you have DeAndre Swift like I do in a couple of my leagues, I'm always like, oh, why is he Why is he not in the game? And then they always put Jamal in, always gets right into the end zone. So if you need a guy who is a secondary back, someone on your bench who's struggling, definitely check out Jamal Williams. He will be productive for you. Next, we have Trevor Lawrence. As we know, quarterback out of Jacksonville. Only 50% rostered on fantasy teams right now. He balled out against the Chargers on Sunday at their home stadium on the road. Finally got his first road win in his career. I also saw a crazy stat that said that both him and Peyton Manning were 0-9 on the road before getting their first road wins against the Chargers. So that's kind of wild. And you know what that means. He's about to turn into the second coming of Peyton Manning. So go pick him up while he's still available. He's thrown for over 230 yards in every single game this season, averaging 19 points overall in fantasy football so far this season through three weeks. So he's proven to be reliable. And in addition, he plays in the worst division in football. So there's going to be a lot of matchups there where he's going to get a lot of leverage, get a lot of big games. So I would try to pick him up if one of your quarterbacks is struggling at the moment. Next, we have Matt Collins, wide receiver with the Vegas Raiders, put up 30 points against the Titans and their loss out of nowhere. Only 0.9% of owners had this guy rostered. He is a diamond in the rough type player. Yeah, this is kind of a gamble pickup because it could be a one-hit wonder, especially with all the great receivers that the Raiders do have on their team. But who knows? Maybe they'll implement him more. After they began this season 0-3, which I can't believe the Raiders are still winless on the season. Uh, but I could see him being a target for Derek Carr in the future. He had five receptions in the week before against the Cardinals. So his numbers are steadily climbing each week. They have a big game against Denver this Sunday. So I could see another big production game for him. I think this could be a gamble that could pay off for you. Matt Collins with the Vegas Raiders. Next, we have Zach Moss out of Buffalo. He's the secondary back to Devin Singletary on the Bills. And yes, I'm aware that the Buffalo Bills throw the ball a lot with Josh Allen and all the great receivers they have, but he had some big plays on Sunday. Only 5% of owners have claimed him. I could see him getting more touches after a couple of big plays he had on Sunday. I remember one clearly. He was walking on a tightrope down the sideline for about a 35-yard pickup. He's a good power back, good speed guy. I think he could find the end zone a little bit more in the upcoming weeks. I think you're going to find Ken Dorsey implementing him more, giving him some more rushes to work with. So I could see his production going up. This is also a little bit of gamble pick, but I like Zach Moss out of Buffalo. That's another guy you should look out for. And finally, we have David Njoku on the Browns. Huge game last Thursday against the Steelers. Nine receptions, one touchdown. This was his first big game tight end, big physical guy, and I think Jacoby Brissett has realized this is a guy he needs to target more. Huge physical tight end, like I just mentioned, who can just 
out-athlete his defenders. We saw that with his touchdown catch on Thursday. Really got up there for his size. I think only 30% of owners have him right now. So that's the guy who can give you some points if you need a new tight end in your slot. I feel like the tight end position is a position where it's really hit or miss. And a lot of these guys don't get a lot of targets. So I think with all those receptions that Jacoby Brissett gave him on Thursday, you're going to see that chemistry start to build in practice and throughout the rest of the games as long as Brissett is the quarterback in Cleveland. All right, guys, that's all for this episode of On The DL Podcast. As always, I truly appreciate the support. We're almost at 500 followers on the Instagram page, which really means the world to me, seriously. The website is now up and running. I'm about to start sharing tons of articles with you guys via the Instagram, so go check that out. Spread this episode with your friends and family, and give the podcast a follow, and I'll see you guys all next week.